0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is A People's Guide to Capitalism, An Introduction to Marxist Economics by Hadass Ter. Economists regularly promote capitalism as the greatest system ever to grace the planet. In the same breath, they implore us to leave the job of understanding the magical powers of the market to the experts. Despite the efforts of these mainstream commentators to convince us otherwise, many of us have begun to question why this system has produced such vast inequality and wanton disregard for its own environmental destruction. This book offers answers to exactly these questions on their own terms in the form of a radical economic theory. As Kianga Yamada-Taylor says of the book, quote, Erudite and sharp, Tyr unpacks the mystery of capitalist inequality with lucid and accessible prose. As we all enter into a world of new realities, we will need books like A People's Guide to help us make sense of the root causes of the financial crises that shape so many of our struggles today. A People's Guide to Capitalism An Introduction to Marxist Economics by Hottest Tier, out now from Haymarket Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island where I, this week, had the great pleasure of working with just loads of incredible organizers and organizations, and we won a massive left landslide in our Democratic primaries for state legislature. Stay tuned. I may do a show on Rhode Island at some point. But in other less good news, what a sad mess. COVID has shined, as many have pointed out, this bright light on every long-running crisis and also intensified those crises, accelerating the inequalities and contradictions faster than we can process them. Higher education is one of many, many cases in point. Decades of austerity, rising tuition, expropriative for-profit boondoggles, attacks on the humanities, and the casualization of teaching work have all brought us to a point where universities insist that students return to dorms and even to in-person classes because colleges are a business. A few are wildly successful, many, many more entirely precarious businesses that depend upon tuition for their revenue. Today, I discuss everything about the higher education situation with Tiffy Bhattacharya, Daniel Bessner, and Simon Torrecinta. But first, I wanted to share some thoughts on the more general health state, a short excerpt from an essay I wrote for the Spanish magazine La Marea, and that I published in English in Jacobin, and it draws on a lot of recent interviews that I've conducted for The Dig. The United States is no longer a model for other countries to envy, emulate, or admire. The pandemic, and the American government's response to it, has laid bare a society marked by deep inequality and a state sapped of its basic capacity after decades of neoliberal reform. As obvious as these facts appear now, It's worth pausing to recall just how important the United States' prior prestige was in the era before the coronavirus killed more than 180,000 Americans. The American Way's appeal exercised a centrifugal pull that was, for our empire, a key counterpart to the raw coercion exercised through wars or coups. A neo-colonial empire as Aziz Rana and Asla Bali write cannot govern through direct intervention alone and it has not winning ideological support for American empire has been as important as the force of arms the american model has of course long been resented and distrusted by people everywhere struggling for freedom what's notable is that coronavirus has exposed not only the falseness of american virtue but the limits of American power. The country's reputation took a hit with the 2008 economic crisis, but the U.S. government still proved indispensable, alongside China, in propelling the global recovery that followed. Trump's presidency and everything that ensued was a more spectacular embarrassment, raising questions about what sort of superpower would elevate such an absurd mediocrity to its highest office. Yet, this spring many of Trump's liberal detractors still clamored for a return to normal, placing their faith in Joe Biden, the faltering standard-bearer of an exhausted centrism, to exorcise Trump's demons. Even as Biden moves the Democratic Party toward victory by default, the pandemic has pulled what is left of a curtain to the side. Just as importantly, America has lost its luster for the domestic audience, too. Americans' belief in their exceptionalism is shaken. Coronavirus brought this country to its knees, not only due to our system's countless weaknesses, but also because of our delusional self-assessment. Despite all evidence to the contrary, many believed that this country was invincible. That fantasy has been destroyed. Those are the first few paragraphs. I will link to the full essay in the show notes if you care to read it. Okay. Before we get started, you listen to this podcast because we offer in-depth and deeply researched interviews. And we can only do that because you, our listeners, contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. I know that many of you cannot afford to contribute, particularly not right now. And that's totally fine. We are committed to making always every episode of this podcast available to all with no paywall. But If you can afford to support us, we do need your support. If you've been meaning to make a contribution but keep forgetting to do so, there are many, many, many distractions out there, please pause the podcast for a minute and go to patreon.com slash the dig. $5 a month is huge. If you contribute $10 or more, we will send you a left-wing book, or left-wing books in the mail as a thank you. We have a bunch to choose from, including A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. Please contribute whatever you can, even a little bit helps a ton, at patreon.com slash thedig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash thedig. Thank you very much. And here we go. Tithi Bhattacharya is a professor of history at Purdue University and writes on feminism and Marxist theory, including the recent book, Feminism for the 99%, co-authored with Nancy Fraser and Cynthia Arutza. Daniel Bessner is a professor in Western civilization at the University of Washington and the author of Democracy in Exile, Hans Speyer and the Rise of the Defense Intellectual, and also author of a recent review essay in The Nation entitled, House of Cards. Can the American University be saved? Simon Torresinta is a PhD candidate in the history of science and medicine at Yale, whose essay on universities and the pandemic, Extinction Event, recently appeared in N Plus One. I will link to both essays in the show notes. Tithi Bhattacharya, Daniel Bessner, and Simon Torresinta, welcome to the dig.
1: Thanks, Daniel.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> so, it's a pretty unreal moment right now. Colleges and universities are bringing students back into dorms, sometimes to participate in actual in person classes, sometimes to participate in remote classes. Some students are doing what students do partying, hanging out, having various sorts of intimacies, and so are spreading coronavirus, unsurprisingly. They're then being shamed and disciplined and even suspended. Just the other day, 11 first year students at Northeastern were sent home for the fall semester after being found gathered in a room together and they will not get any of their tuition refunded. And these were students among hundreds who were supposed to be abroad this semester, but are instead absurdly being housed at a a Westin hotel in Boston. What's going on?
1: Okay, I'll go first. (laughs) Because, and the reason I'll go first is because my university has record enrollment of undergraduates um, this academic year. Thirty, nearly thirty five thousand undergraduate students are coming back to Purdue University. Our president very proudly told us at the start of the semester that eighty eight percent of those undergraduate students opted to uh, come back for in-person classes. So uh, there is great rejoicing in administrative circles because more more students mean more tuition dollars and um, more students opting to come back for in-person classes is a sign they, they trust the way Purdue administration has handled the COVID-19 crisis. So now this was um, the start of August uh, that we were given all this um, bright, shiny news. And then this is the third week of classes that we are in. I am teaching online and already two of my students have reported a positive um, COVID-19 in their testing. And 36 students at Purdue had to be suspended. The university administration suspended 36 students, like you say, Daniel, for partying. So as far as I'm concerned, this is an extraordinarily short-sighted, but we should talk about, calculate why it's a calculated, short-sighted move by the administration to have students on campus, to have 18-year-olds on campus for the first time being undergraduate students, and then blaming them for doing what 18-year-olds will do. So I think what we should be talking about is why it is that administrations, university administrations, insisted on students being on campus, and then had to construct a sort of victim-blaming game to blame those very students for doing what students are supposed to do, which is hang out with each other, fall in love, and have heartbreaks.
0: (laughs) Indeed. Daniel?
2: Yeah, I I think that's, that's right. And I think this is essentially the upshot of 20, 30, 40 years, depending about depending on how far back you want to go, of particular decisions that have been made uh, by American universities in the last 30 to 40 years. Um, and th- this is true mostly of universities across what might be called the pr- the prestige uh, spectrum, from, from the top at Harvard into other universities that, that there's no need to necessarily name. But essentially, in the in the last 30, 40 years, uh, universities have rebranded themselves as spaces that aren't necessarily primarily about education or search, but are spaces that are uh, supposed to provide a particular type of experience to to young Americans, particularly young Americans of some means of at least, you know, um, at at least lower middle class means and and going all the way up to the the wealthiest Americans and uh, also international students as well. And I think it's important to talk about the role of international students here. But essentially, um, universities uh, led by sort of the neoliberal logic imposed by uh, administrators have uh, hollowed out... um, The faculty, in terms of replacing full-time faculty members, tenure-track faculty members, with adjunct faculty members, and thus limiting um, faculty's role in university governance, governance, and at the same time, have begun um, increasing tuition to help provide uh, funds for things like fancy—the thing that people always point to—is the fancy climbing wall, right, or or fancy dining halls, or nice residences, uh, dormitories, or nice gyms, uh, and things along those lines. And that—that was all well good, you know, whatever, whatever, obviously not, not, I don't think so, but it was able to sustain itself until essentially, um, 2008. When you see uh, the Great Recession causing a rapid decline in both public, but also to some degree, private support for universities. And what you, a lot of universities have done um, is that they've replaced the shortfall in budgets um, by recruiting more students from abroad, um, particularly uh, in my understanding, students from uh, China and, and also uh, Korea, South Korea, to a large Uh, degree. And so COVID presents a number of problems. First and and most important, uh, if students don't want to pay for the experience that they're currently being uh, denied, right? If college is all about an experience and they're not getting that experience, um, they're just you know, sitting in their dorm rooms or sitting at home and getting taught by professors on, on Zoom, why would they pay that? But also, the, the fact of the matter is, is that many students from uh, abroad don't want to return to the United States, given our, our disastrous handling of the COVID-19 crisis. So there's worries about a tuition shortfall there.
0: And the Trump administration has not exactly been friendly to foreign students.
2: Plus that. I think that's more at the margins. Uh, I think that's in terms of like the direct effect on number of students, but I think that's really uh, indicative uh, of what's going on here. Sort of the, the emergent, uh, not the emergent, Dan, you wrote a book about this, but the, the the very present, always present and increasingly riding xenophobia in the United States. And so this is what the university uh, is currently faced with. And I think this is why there was such a stress on getting students back to campus, even though my guess is that many administrators understood that this was wouldn't be, uh, by any stretch of the imagination, uh, a long-term solution, not even a short one.
0: Simon, you know, one thing that I've found remarkable talking to every professor I know is that is that none of them have any faith in administrators. And it, it's, it's obviously hard to sympathize with, say, like an Ivy with a massive endowment, but other universities and colleges are, in fact, pretty seriously screwed and have barely any endowment to speak of. And you know, I don't I don't envy those who are tasked with being in charge right now in the amid a total fail state America. To to what degree has the Trump administration and, and neoliberalism put administrators in an impossible position? And to what extent are they nonetheless making an impossible situation profoundly worse?
3: Yeah, I mean, I just want to build on as well on what Daniel and Tithy was saying, which is underscoring just how cash flow dependent university administrations or universities in general are these days you know, almost all except the very well-endowed universities need tuition and rental income to come in every year. And there was an incredible op-ed by the president of Brown, uh, an economist in April, saying more or less that if that money stopped coming in, even for a semester, uh, and I'll quote the line, uh, it's not a question of whether institutions will be forced to permanently close, it's how many. So I think, you know, when we think about these poor decisions made by administrators, I really want to underscore the logic of financialization that has made that possible and that has kind of backed them into a corner. On the other hand, I think it's also fair to say that administrators never really made a serious effort to think about alternative models than trying to create a simulacra of the college experience for the COVID era. Obviously, the Trump administration is not a very helpful ally. But on the other hand, there doesn't seem to have been a concerted lobbying effort to try to Um, increase aid available or to try to make it possible to reopen in a safe way.
1: Yeah. So I was just going to say, you know, um, talking about the college experience and the tuition-based funding, I think we should take a step back a little bit and look at the sort of tuition-based funding model, because right now, all of us who are working in higher education take that model for granted. And we forget that that was actually not, in the case of the United States, the dominant model of higher education. Public education had a meaning and public education had a a role to play in enhancing social good. And this was a sort of a common bipartisan understanding of public education. You know, Republican governors and Democrats alike believed that public education contributed, yes, in an instrumental way. They believed in an instrumental sort of capital-centric way, but they believed public education education uh, contributed to a more educated working class who will then go on to build the economy. So this changed, obviously, from the 1980s and the sort of unfurling of what both Simon and Daniel has rightly identified as the neoliberal era. And we have the sort of uh, Reagan talking about Uh, Berkeley as the sort of bête noire of the American um, state in the sense that people at Berkeley were basically indulging in their intellectual curiosity with uh, taxpayers' money and then uh, indulging in protesting uh, that very state, that, that paid for them. So, he def- and
0: sexual orgies Reagan was very disturbed by that. Yeah,
1: exactly. That's that's what <laughs> students are, you know, doing all the time, you know. Anyway, so uh, well, there are no sexual orgies going on right now, unfortunately, because most students, <laughs> you know, are 50% of students are food insecure. So, let's talk about that. So, anyway, so there is uh, so this was the sort of model and and you know, Because I teach at a land-grant university, I've actually had to research some of this. And tuition-based funding form about 25% of the budget of public universities today, and even more, I want to say, 35 to 40 of, of private universities. And so this sort of leads on to if you're paying for this, if you're paying for your university experience, as Daniel rightly called it, then you are a sort of deserving consumer on university campus, and you deserve uh, the sort of amenities that uh, a neoliberal um, subject um, has, um, has been promised. So this has led to when we're talking about the university experience, it is horrifying for me to watch this this two tier living that students are now having to uh, live through as as undergraduates. So, for instance, on my campus, um, Purdue went into per- partnership with uh, sort of real estate firms. If you come to Purdue, there are you know there is construction going on all over campus and a huge new student accommodations are being built, and one of which uh, carries this really uh, terrorizing logo for me, which says, we build for people who expect more. And the monthly rent for a one-bedroom apartment in this very, very fancy building is $1,500 for one student. And This, you have to compare to the standard university dorm room that a lot of working class undergraduates at Purdue are living in, which is $270 a month. So that's the sort of differential that you can um, expect now of livelihood in the the sort of neoliberal student experience on college campuses.
0: And this is rent in West Lafayette, Indiana, not, not Manhattan.
1: That's correct. But, you know, you have a rooftop garden and a barbecue and a pool and a gym all at your disposal. And you don't have to muck it out with um, other kids in, you know, sort of uh, more shared gyms and, and pools.
0: Daniel?
2: Yeah, I just wanted to bring this up because I think it's pretty important, especially as we begin to think through alternatives, I think as we'll probably do later, is that I think it's critical to recognize that the large expansion of higher education in this country occurred mostly because of the Cold War. Right. So you have the National Defense Education Act of 1958, which is really the moment when the federal government is like, we're truly going to fund. Uh, American universities, right, and it's called the National Defense Education Act, right, and that's what increased, this is why area studies is a thing in this country, it's because it was funded by the government, so the United States could essentially have um, the knowledge and the skills and the literal people to manage the American empire, and so I think one of the crucial questions for people who identify on the left as as social democratic or democratic socialist or socialist is is to really appreciate the fact that in the United States, social Democratic transformation has never come about without militaristic pressures. Um, and I think we see this particularly with the expansion of the post-World War II welfare state. Um, and we're going to see more and more books come about this and coming, uh, come out about this in coming years. But you essentially see uh, American labor and the uh, liberal left make a deal with the national security state, which is that as long as the national security state provides funding, provides contracts, provides defense contracts that help local workers, labor is essentially going to accept the American empire. And I think this is really critical uh, to understand if we want to move past this sort of um, unholy marriage between social democratic welfare statism and American militarism. And I don't think um, there's an easy solution to that. And you, in fact, are starting to see some people argue that a quote unquote new Cold War with China will actually be good for American universities because it will then uh, put more and more money uh, into the American university system. And it's not a surprise that someone...
0: Demand will be up for sinologists.
2: You better believe it, man, both here and in China. But it's not a surprise um, that Reagan starts, uh, you know, excoriating American universities in the 80s. It's when the Cold War is winding down. It's when it's pretty clear that the United States has a, a turns out less robust than people thought at the time, but a more robust political economy, a more robust society than the Soviet Union. So that militaristic pressure to support American higher education dissipates a lot. And uh, another thing I want to add, and then I'll stop talking, is that you also see, particularly in the 60s and 70s, the entrance of far more uh, minorities, black Americans, uh, Americans of Latin descent, women, uh, you know, especially begin to enter American higher education. And then that also, I think, to a degree that it's kind of difficult to trace, uh, also sort of deflates the government interest um, in funding this thing. So I just think, I just wanted to emphasize that because I think it's critical not to look back on sort of an imagined mid century golden age, because that golden age was always tied to the worst impulses of, of the American empire and American
3: imperialism. Yeah, and just to jump in on that, I think looking back to that history helps us understand that some of these trends that we think of as relatively recent or products of neoliberalism are actually a good deal older. I mean, Things like human capital theory, right, the idea that we think is a pure product of neoliberal thinking has been around for quite a long time and was being deployed already in the 1940s for in arguments for the GI Bill, which greatly expanded access to education and then again in the further Cold War expansions of the university. So I think, like Daniel's saying, there's a, there's a much longer trajectory and um, the troubles don't begin in 1980.
0: Since 1970, the percentage of young Americans enrolled in higher ed grew from about a quarter of all 18 to 24 year olds to roughly 40 percent in 2017. At the same time, we have seen seemingly never-ending, maybe until recently it sort of hit a ceiling, never-ending tuition hikes and deep cuts to public funding, including just massive ones after the 2008 financial crisis that have now been more or less normalized. I this is from historian Claire Bon Potter. She she writes that between 1987 and 2012, public funding dropped by 25 to 30%. Meanwhile, from 1980 to 2014, tuition increased nationally by 260%, more than twice the rate of other consumer expenses. What can we make of this huge growth in college enrollment coinciding with a massive pullback in, in state commitment to public education funding coinciding with a doubling down in the state commitment to funding, to backing student loans, coinciding with college being more necessary than ever in this job market, but you're more on your own than ever in terms of of paying for it. What do we make of all of these things coinciding?
1: Okay. Well, um, again, I think um, I'll go and talk about the sort of outlier here, which is Purdue, And my president, who was once the governor, the Republican governor of Indiana. So you see, we go back a long way. He passed a right to work (laughs) in Indiana. So I was in the state house with, you know, hundreds of union workers uh, protesting right to work. And lo and behold, two years later, he's my boss at my university. So he... um, He actually is now in the national news, you know, there there are articles uh, about him from the uh, sort of very laudatory articles about him from the Atlantic to the Washington Post to the New York Times, because Mitch Daniels actually has instituted a tuition freeze at Purdue since 2013. So Purdue is one of the very few universities in the United States of America where tuition has not gone up since 2013. However, as like everybody... Everywhere else, the governor of Indiana slashed the budget by 15% uh, this year, um, you know, and uh, several things have happened since the Great Recession, but produced tuition has not gone up since 2013. And, you know, Mitch Daniels is very folksy, so he likes to say, well, it's not magic. It's just what we, ha- <laughs> what we decided not to do, which is we decided not to have adjuncts. We decided not to depend on uh, tuition dollars from international students we decided to do it the Purdue way. And what is the Purdue way? The Purdue way has meant, the tuition freeze has meant higher medical costs for faculty and staff, absolutely stringent cuts in departments, Most of our departments, the TAs have been uh, slashed, TA budgets have been slashed, graduate programs have been slashed. Uh, Mitch Daniels does not like graduate programs because graduate students have to be paid rather than them pay the university. So why do we need graduate programs? Smaller classes have been eliminated and the atmosphere in the university is basically a free-for-all Hobbesian state because every uh, department is fighting for uh, for the money that the university says is the annual budget. Now, in the midst of all this, there is an Orwellian program that the president uh, instituted uh, about two years ago, which is called Back a Boiler, so Purdue's football team um, is the Boilermakers, and so all undergraduates are supposed to be Boilermakers. And so you can have this um, program called BACA Boiler. <laughs> BACA Boiler is basically modern-day indentured service, which is a corporation can decide to invest in an undergraduate and it's not a loan. Back a boiler program says very proudly, um, it is not a grant. The corporation will invest in you, and then when you get a job, that you will pay the corporation back. Okay. So this program has been again has gotten a lot of attention in the national media, and other university administrators are actually trying to follow up on this. What the point here is that the tuition increase is not really the form that we should focus on. What we should focus on is the tuition-dependent model of higher education that has shaped universities since the 1980s. And it takes different forms in different universities. In some universities, there's a rise in tuition. In others, it's uh, it's dystopian scenarios like back a boiler.
0: Simon?
3: Just to widen the scope a little bit, I think the the tuition-dependent model and the sort of secular decline in public investment in education are related, because at least since the 1960s, um, tuition dollars are federally backed by loans. There's always an escape valve, right? So there's always a way that the revenue can, can come from loans as opposed to direct grants or subsidies from the state. And when state governments are making budgetary decisions, the discretionary line items like higher ed or they're always the first to go when compared to sort of fixed funding formulas for things like healthcare, Medicaid, K-12 education. And so I think in some ways, you know, the availability of these federally backed loans, which you don't even lose when you go bankrupt, you pass on to your heirs, et cetera, have sort of fueled a massive growth in the sector, right? So they're the goose that laid the golden egg. But on the other hand, have also given state governments an excuse to decrease funding in the over the long term.
0: Yeah, so Daniel, this this gradual and very dramatic <laughs> overtime disinvestment in, in higher education happening at the same moment when the income gap between college grads and non grads has grown. Why why these two things at the same time?
2: I I mean, I think it's just uh, in some sense what, what shitty aspect of capitalism that you're going to actually get. I think these are problems that inevitable uh that inevitably arise when you don't have a, a totally publicly funded university sector. And I, I, I think as as the um it became ever more clear over the course of this twentieth century second half as processes like deindustrialization um occurred in some parts of the country uh, you have a, a concomitant process of sort of like high skillification, where it became clear that in order to enter the, or really not even to enter, to, to enter old industries that were now being transformed by new neoliberal technologies. Um, and I, I mean neoliberal technologies just in the sense that they were funded by, by essentially capitalists, like highly complex computer programs, techniques of administration, things along those lines. In order to actually do those things effectively, you needed to have, a pretty highly educated workforce, which made it necessary for people to go to college, which made it possible for colleges to essentially or universities to sell themselves as places where the American worker needed to go in order to take full advantage of the American dream. Uh, and of course, as that was going on, you have the processes of deindustrialization that led to the hollowing out of, of, of this country in a variety of ways that occurred over the last um, 40 years. So I think that's. Um, really important thing to understand uh, about the process that that, that led us to uh, the situation that we're in uh, today with, with these Uh, students taking out massive amounts of debt. Of course, the problem that has happened is that as these types of new technologies have actually increasingly decreased the number of workers one needs in various industries, and particularly the fact that new algorithms, like as reflected in Uber or Lyft or what have you, have totally destroyed uh, any need for a middle management class, is that you uh, have students taking out tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, thousands of dollars in debt to get jobs that they're never going to get for debt that they're never going to repay. So uh, it seems like we've reached almost the ultimate contradiction uh, where now you have a generation that is not going to be able to be employed. Plus you have a COVID pandemic that isn't going to even allow this generation to have their year or two or three or four of fucking off in college, which is the situation that the American university presently finds itself in.
0: Tithi Simon, another thought on this before before I shift gears a little.
1: Well, I think I want to add a little bit to um, Daniel's earlier point about. I completely agree, and I think we need to talk more about. Um, how the initial investment in public education was tied to American imperialism abroad right so that's that 's absolutely true, but I want to also sort of um, push back a little on the the idea of the state and and the intentions of the state being fully monolithic, so yes, absolutely that was the intention to invest in higher education, but the the fruits of that intention. Uh, the fruits of that investment was never um, going to be too fully to the liking of the state. So, for instance, um, you know, the the 1960s student movement that pushed higher education even further uh, extended the right of Higher education to underrepresentative groups and to women I think actually changed the l- landscape of the university uh, before but even before that I want to say that uh, folks going to university always had that sort of uh, liminal uh, relationship to the American state um, in the sense that there was always possibility in within the campus to challenge the um, the framework of why you were being educated, which was to defend empire. So while I fully agree that that was the intention, I also wanted to kind of make the picture a little more complex in the sense that there were always countervailing tendencies within university campuses, which, um, which is probably why uh, from the 60s, uh, they became such uh, hotbeds of, of um, sort of revolutionary thought.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute, because that's a fascinating point. It's a similar sort of contradiction that we see between Henry Ford, the industrialist, and the Ford Foundation as a foundation. Not that it's an inherently opposed sort of phenomena, but it is, it is a sort of phenomena that, that is, in some sense, uh, in a state of contradiction. And it, is there a gap and thus a contradiction between these three different things? One, the role that higher ed is supposed to play or intended to play. By by the state or by capital or or whatever, one. Two, the almost inherently sometimes subversive nature of certain sorts of academic or intellectual or intellectual pursuits. And three, this austere reality that, that exists. Because it seems like there are a lot of things that are incommensurate about the present state of things.
2: Well, I mean, I would just quickly say, and and everyone could feel free to disagree with me, but I don't think universities are particularly radical spaces. I think they, they, in some sense, you know, were where the le- the American left, always incredibly weak, uh, particularly weak since Woodrow Wilson uh, arrested Eugene Debs and essentially destroyed the American socialist movement uh, and the government, you know, periodically oppressing various left movements over the course of the 20th century. But, you know, uh, I think we see the lack of radicalism in the academy, with just the sheer fact that so few tender track and tenured faculty actually do anything to help contingent colleagues. So I don't think the state personally has that much problem confining leftist agitation and leftist thought to a university that has largely proven itself totally powerless to force any sort of radical left transformation, let alone to even defend their own shop and prevent the totally hollowing out of their workforce. So I, I, I do appreciate that there are countervailing tendencies. But in my opinion, these tendencies were never particularly threatening to the state and the state recognized that from the beginning. And it actually got a lot more from funding all the right wing sci- uh, political scientists or area studies scholars who eventually staffed their bureaucracy that continues to dominate uh, the world. Um, so, I mean, I think it's interesting because I, I think this might be a relatively new opinion. And, and I, don't, I don't know what everyone else here thinks, just because, I mean, in my own time, in my own you know, time on the job market, just seeing so few faculty actually doing anything to, to prevent adjunctification. It's made me very skeptical of the university as a radical space. And, and then you see things like Judith Butler giving money to Kamala Harris, and that's a whole other thing. But yeah, that's my general <laughs> take on that.
0: Yeah, about 75% of higher ed teaching is performed by non-tenure track faculty, including loads of adjuncts who sometimes have to rely on public assistance to survive, just to underline a point that, that Daniel just made. Simon, go ahead.
3: Yeah, I mean, I just want to bring up a couple of quick points that I think speak to some of the things we've been talking about. I mean, one is, you know, if we look at a slightly more granular level than the, you know, Cold War military industrial university complex, we see that places like, you know, this, like SUNY um, were, uh, when they were built, sort of inspired by a social democratic vision, right, or at least a kind of localist version of that. And I think someone like Kim Phillips Vine, who you talked, about, you talked to in the dig, speaks to that I also think uh Melinda Cooper
0: CUNY in particular,
3: yes, yes, um, and I also think someone like Melinda Cooper makes a pretty interesting case at least in the nineteen sixties the you know free provision of education created a whole generation of uh students that were not dependent on their parents for support and in some sense created the shock troops if you will of you know of the new left right in a, in a at least in a material sense, and that was in some ways what people like reagan were uh, when he became the governor of California were reacting to. I do think though that what, you know the landscape today is very different. And the disciplinary pressures in terms of job insecurity, which you alluded to, right, in terms of, for instance, the percentage of adjunct faculty really do have a depoliticizing effect. Because if you step out of line, your your job is at risk in a very serious way. And I think that the sort of increasing precarity and security of the university system has been a very effective tool for neutering its politics. Tiffy?
1: I obviously agree with the idea that Tenure faculty are some of the worst social uh, categories to um, <laughs> organize. You know, anyone who has tried to build an AAUP chapter knows exactly how hard and how terrible it is. And and you know, first the excuse is oh, well, you know, I won't get tenure. Then the excuse is, well, I won't be promoted. And then the excuse is, well, you know, I am so and so on and so forth. So I absolutely agree with that, which is why I want to I point towards that the actual uh, radical organizing that's going on right now uh, on university campuses are amongst adjuncts and uh, graduate students, right? So graduate student strikes, which often... Include adjunct demands and and so on are sort of really really hopeful sites for organizing on campuses, but that said, I I do want to go back to universities being uh, contradictory spaces, and I think maybe I don't want to spend all our time sort of arguing about this. This is interesting, but but I'm just going to say that I think like all things under capitalism, there is always uh, the sort of dual pressures on on any kind of space, uh, which involves a lot of human labor and labor power being shaped, because that's what universities are. You're shaping uh, students to be workers. That's one way to look at it. And the other is you're also uh, shaping students to resist capital. So both of those things go on at the same time. So like any space that does that, like the bourgeois family, like the workplace, like the university, both of those uh, tendencies operate at the same time. And so I absolutely want to defend my position of administrators and the state actually not being particularly happy with any kind of radical seeds within, within the campus. I mean, we all remember uh, Occupy and the speed with which state governors, as well as university administration, were brought in cops, ride cops, ride police onto campuses. And uh, remember Linda Katehi? Uh, Also, a brilliant, stellar contribution of Purdue to higher education. She was the chancellor of UC Davis after she left Purdue, and she ordered in cops to occupying students and remember that famous pepper spray cop. So, you know, and I I really uh, want to emphasize the point that right to education uh, right to higher education or right to any education is actually you know going back to things that I study is actually a social reproduction right right It is a right to life. It is not simply about becoming more knowledgeable but it's about education and and a degree opening your doors to a more to various other avenues of life making like a secure job and in the case of the United States where jobs are tried to healthcare, healthcare, so uh, retirement and so on. So, and the student movements of the 1960s was about precisely extending this right to life-making to the underrepresented groups. So when Reagan talked about welfare bums and attacking universities, he was actually being quite prescient. He was saying or recognizing education's connection to these other forms of social reproduction and other forms of life making. And he was saying that web must be cut. You must be taken out as an individual from these wider web of the social wage and and so on, and you must fend for yourself. So that's kind of why I think universities at this point still are those sort of contradictory spaces where both seeds of rebellion can be sown as well as seeds of conformity, as we well know.
2: I I would agree that that universities historically proved spaces where um, particularly new forms of identity claims related to political rights were able to be developed and, and were able to be proffered. Uh, university com- uh, movements, of course, connected to more organic movements on the ground, some might say. I, I completely agree. But uh, I guess what I, I'm coming from the perspective that I, I think the U.S. left is actually pretty weak. I think if anything, recent uh, events have demonstrated um, the, the weakness of the American left. So it, it might be worth pursuing about why were particular forms of identity claims were very important, I I might add, crucially important in a variety of different ways. I don't want to underplay them. Very, very revolutionary important. But how come those claims were the ones that were able to have an effect while critiques of capitalism were able to have a much less of an effect? And I think the university um, has been radical in some areas like you, rec- you, you discuss, but in questions of capital and questions of capital's relationship to society and the university's relationship to capital, it's been profoundly first consensus liberal in the 50s, 60s, and 70s before transforming into neoliberal from the 70s until today. So that might be an interesting question worth asking. How come certain forms of critique were able to take hold and other forms of critique never really took hold in the university?
0: Yeah. let Tithi, how about a direct response to that and then I'll ask my next question.
1: Okay. So I think uh, certain kinds of identity, as you say, Daniel, I think I would agree, but with a slight uh, qualification. So, for instance, if we're talking about well, the qualification is not about the fact that universities cannot are are not spaces where capitalism can be criti- uh, critiqued. I mean, yes, that is uh, that is the space where universities will absolutely put up firewalls. I agree with that. But even when it comes to identities, I mean, I think one of the things that we are seeing very clearly right now is that when it comes to identities, diversity um, is valued over anti-racism. Diversity is valued over uh, sexism. And that's kind of tied uh, to what you're saying, that anti-racism would actually include in it an anti-capitalist charge. But diversity does not need to do that. So I wouldn't quite say that universities are more conducive for certain kind of identity-based critiques. I would say uh, the universities are good at actually, but then capitalism is good at that, at taking certain social movements, uh, which were the social movements of the 1960s, for uh, anti-racist and anti-sexist struggle, and then transforming them into capital-centric Programs which are toothless and completely safe. So, in other words, I'm. Uh, I don't think universities are spaces where anti-racism or anti-sexism are encouraged. Um, what is encouraged is diversity programs.
0: Stepping back a minute, I, th- I think you made a really important point, Tiffy, in that what capitalism requires or wants. Out of higher ed, just like what it wants or, or needs out of the family or the factory, it requires the fas- the facilitation of certain social and economic phenomena or for- formations that can be subversive and contradictory. This is a basic reason that capitalism is inherently contradictory. Simon, let's take Daniel's argument that the university sort of neatly serves the imperialist capitalist state's interests as a given for the sake of argument. If that's true— Does the neoliberal hollowing out of the university then present a contradiction, another order of contradiction?
3: Well, I mean, I think in some ways the neoliberal hollowing out of the university parallels what's happening elsewhere in the economy. And I think that does afford new possibilities for what kinds of politics can be practiced within the university. I mean, I think if there is an area of politicization that I think probably everyone on this call or everyone on this podcast would agree with, it's that the upsurge in labor organizing in the academy has been rather remarkable in the last decade or so. I mean, the idea that uh, we are in a medieval guild system that is cloistered from the rest of society, I think, has been increasingly smashed by (laughs) uh, both the neoliberal forces of university, but also by, you know, organizers on the ground. I mean, but even in the last couple of years, so for instance, when Donald Trump was first inaugurated, there was only one recognized grad student union at a private university. There are now 10. That seems like a small number still, but that's a very dramatic toehold in a sector that has historically been extremely hostile to even the very idea of grad students being workers. Um, And I think there's also, you know, given the connections between the precarity of adjuncts and instructional faculty and grad students and service workers, low paid service workers across the economy, I think there's a real possibility here for building broader coalitions, right? I mean, we talk a lot of the focus in labor movement at the moment is on eds and meds. while universities are a huge anchor in that.
0: One thing that seems to pose a problem that I think there's been reference made to this already is that it's hard for me to think of a more extraordinarily status-obsessed industry (laughs) than (laughs) academia. And Ed Bermilla wrote in a recent Chronicle of Higher Education essay, quote, Are there enough academic workers with a stake in the tenure system left to defend it? Sure. The tenured and tenure-track faculty who currently make up less than 30% of the college teaching force would be pissed, but could they count on the great non-tenured masses of university workers, contingent faculty, grad students, staff members, etc. to come to their defense? Why would they? Seriously, I'm asking, why would they? If you're a tenured or tenure-track faculty member, what concrete reasons have you given your university colleagues to fight with and for you to defend what you have and they don't? What is the consequence of this incredible proletarianization of of academic labor that we've seen? And do you think that unionization, grad student un- organizing efforts and, and other such projects, do they make you optimistic that academic workers can unite and organize to to fight back.
2: Well, I think the consequences are are twofold. I mean, first, you have to take into account the lives of people who who teach, the adjuncts themselves. And and in in most cases, it's pretty grim, you know, traveling around from campus to campus for low pay, um, not being able to fully prepare your classes, not being able to do any research. If that's what you are interested in, Um, 25% of college instructors now receive some form of government assistance. So sometimes going hungry, not being able to afford yourself, let alone a family. Uh, something along those lines. So that's the first uh, consequence. And I think that needs to be centered. A second consequence is that instruction and teaching is just not as good for students. Um, learning uh, that uh, many, many, many studies have shown is essentially a social process that relies on the formation of social bonds. Um, and university faculty, and one might also add university staff members um, from uh, you know administrators in uh, higher education offices to uh, con- subcontracted out cafeteria employees, they're, they're also precarious. And so there's been a general weakening of the social bonds upon which learning um, in, any, in, in any way, shape, or form relies. So you have a uh, terrible uh, adjunct life, and you also have uh, the, the decline in learning, and also one might add the decline of research, because um, adjuncts rarely have the time, or frankly, I, if I were uh, an adjunct, I wouldn't necessarily want to devote my life to a career that has pro- not provided me very much, um, maybe even the inclination to research. Now, the question of hope is, and I'm just going to continue to be pessimistic because I'm feeling uh, pretty pessimistic right now, is I, I'm not sure if uh, any form of labor organization confined to the university is going to make any sort of difference. I think that at this point, we're, the, the problems of the university um, are the problems of contemporary American capitalism, and that you're not going to solve the former without simultaneously at least taking on and solving the latter. So I think that the only way any sort of unionization or organization effort is going to uh, redound to the benefit of the university in a American society as a whole, or world society even, uh, is if these these, uh, burgeoning movements, which one might add uh, administrators are going to constantly try to crush, connect themselves to other precarious workers. I think that that you generally see a precarity throughout the political economy, from the adjunct professor to the Uber driver to the Amazon warehouse worker. And if there was some way to actually unite these constituencies in meaningfully large uh, and meaningfully directed movements, you'd be able to see uh, some significant social change. That's a big ask, and I'm not sure it's uh, exactly on the horizon, although I very much hope it is. Tiffy? (laughs)
1: Okay. On that note, <laughs> so um, please be
0: optimistic. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> well, I, well, you know it's hard for me to be optimistic at my university, which doesn't even allow unionization, right? So, but I will be. So, I want to just um, dial back a little bit and to, and talk about what Daniel, where Daniel left off, and he's absolutely right about the everyday living experiences of being an adjunct in America today right so we are living in cars dying you know these these seem to be becoming actually points of everyday experience of teaching at a university i mean you know again you began this segment by asking the question is, is there any j- job that sort of is more status dependent and yet within that very space of these hallowed status-dependent campus, you have people who are teaching in three different universities, commuting across the city to do that, uh, taking care of their uh, family, often uh, for women uh, doing all the unpaid labor uh, that comes with all of that and so on. And actually, I think even the word or the term adjunct or part-time obfuscates the fact that adjuncts and so-called part-timers actually teach the equivalent of full-time course loads, right? So what adjunct or part-time actually signifies is their is their right to payment and working conditions, that those are precarious, but their workload is actually uh, sometimes... Uh, very often equal and sometimes even more than uh, tenured professors and, and, and tenure track professors. So I think there is real potential between three sections in the university. So on the one hand, we have adjuncts uh, leading this sort of uh, absolute precarious existence. But let's look at uh, graduate students who are also sort of um, graduate instructors and and hold graduate assistantships who also have really bad working conditions. And we have seen, as Simon pointed out, uh, one of the most hopeful uh, signs of organizing on, on college campuses amongst graduate students. GEOs have grown rapidly in various uh, universities. And, you know, right now, um, the the University of Michigan, the graduate students are planning on an abolitionist strike. So they're actually planning for a strike that includes anti-racist demands, like getting uh, campus cops off campus, so I think that's, that's tremendously hopeful, an alliance between graduate students and adjuncts, but I also want to say that if and when such an alliance uh, takes place, I think undergraduate uh, students in most universities will actually back such, an, uh, uh, such, such a political formation, because as I said, 50% of students today are food insecure, 22% are routinely hungry, uh, 64% are housing insecure. I mean, I, I know these figures off the top of my head because I have students who fall asleep in my classes because they're holding down six jobs, you know? Well, okay, not six, three jobs. And so this is what the neoliberal campus right now looks like. Precarious adjuncts teaching debt-ridden students, attack on the humanities and huge diversity programs from top down while there are hiring freezes and adjuncts are being uh, fired, which is really uh, where most of women and faculty of color uh, teach. So in this kind of a sort of bombed out scenario of the neoliberal university, I think there is tremendous hope as far as i'm concerned in these social categories getting together and because there is there is nowhere to go but to protest because the future really looks bleak and there are signs right i mean in, in At Rutgers, uh, the AAUP union, actually, after a year of contract negotiations, won um, uh, pay raises uh, for longtime adjuncts, uh, and it was nearly 30% of pay raise at Rutgers. But that had to be done with a conscious decision to uh, include adjuncts within the trope of organizing other faculty, right? So it cannot be this tenure-track faculty have to understand that their interest is bound up with the future of the graduate students and the adjuncts because it is, yes, they are tenured, but A neoliberal university, once it weakens these bonds of solidarity, can actually very easily take away their jobs. They can simply close departments like uh, they have done various times um, in recent, uh, since 2008. So I think a tenure faculty cannot join adjunct unionizing thinking that they're helping, quote unquote, the adjuncts. I think they should join that unionizing effort if by understanding that their interest is tied to uh, the interest of the adjuncts and the graduate students.
3: Well, I mean, speaking as the only graduate student, I do think that the question of solidarity coming from tenure faculty is still an open question, especially at uh, tenure faculty and at elite universities. But I do want to give us a couple of grounds for hope. I mean, one of them is, I think, as Tiffy said, um, it's becoming increasingly clear, especially in um, slightly in campuses with in a slightly more precarious position, that everyone is in the same boat, um, and we're starting to see now in in p- the post pandemic situation, um, even tenured faculty uh, receiving layoffs. Right, so I saw just recently at the University of Akron, Ohio, 98 unionized faculty were laid off just last month, and I do think that that at least poses the question of what side <laughs> tenured faculty are on. Um, I also think there's there's some hopeful signs. So. In the wake of the pandemic, there was a solidarity statement put out by something like 70 senior scholars pledging to boycott universities that refused to extend the one-year extensions that they gave to tenure-track faculty to adjunct lecturers and also to graduate students. And that's now signed, been signed by something like 3,000 other scholars. Um, so that's a pretty serious development, especially coming from senior faculty who don't usually participate in these kinds of collective actions. And I think... For me, the final area of hope is looking at the K-12 teacher strikes we've seen in the last couple of years where these movements um, were really able to put the question of funding on the table in a, in a very public way. Um, and I do think that, present, that poses for us a model for what higher education movements might look like and ones that are able to not just fight within the university in terms of questions of power vis-a-vis administration and in terms of pay, but also in terms of public provision and, and grants for, and funding for universities.
0: In terms of what a proactive left higher ed agenda might look like, can we link College for All, which was so central to galvanizing young people behind Bernie, to a, this broader politics of transforming higher ed? Because it seems to me as though the academic left's agenda for academia, which I hear a lot about, has remained insular and not linked up to this broader and very popular social democratic demand or really any sort of broader. Left politics, like Bernie, did not put forward an agenda to transform higher ed, and I don't really blame him for it because I never even heard anyone really pitch him on doing so. It it hasn't been put forward insofar as I've seen as as a, as a political debate. Dad, Dad,
2: Bernie was pitched. I promised you I pitched that. <laughs>
0: but point being, why haven't we seen that as an integral part of left politics in this country? We've seen college for all put forward. We've seen cancelling student debt being very central, popular planks, but they haven't really been popularly linked to a broader agenda.
1: Okay, my answer probably will be a bit controversial because I think the uh, College for All and the Bernie movement was an electoral movement, right? So the kind of agenda of broader social transformation of which the university is one part has to be actually an organic social movement, a grassroots social movement from below. That's what 1960s was when the walls of the university were broken down to, to uh, talk about the transformation of society, to talk about how to link the college campus to anti-Vietnam War protests and so on. And, and that was not the the project of the Bernie movement, the Bernie phenomenon, as great as it was, was an electoral movement that was talking about all of these issues, uh, debt cancellation and college for all as policy issues, which are great policy issues, but they did not come out of an organic social movement. And I think that's the kind of difference I see between why these sort of policy ideas got put forward, but not an agenda for transformative change of the universities aligned to a transformation of society.
2: And I would just build. I think that's exactly right. And I would just build on that by saying, in some sense, and everyone feel free to disagree with me. I don't mean to be controversial, but I don't think the left has proffered a vision of like the good society that it hopes to realize. It it's sort of offered itself as providing particular goods to Americans. It's it's offered itself as you know doing things like canceling debt or making college free, which I guess is part of the good situation. But if you, but but ex- exactly uh, what Tithi was just saying, which is that. These sorts of large social transformations need to be linked um, to some sort of utopian vision of society, and then a broader strategy about how we actually get there. So I, I don't think it's particularly surprising that what was an essentially a, a, a campaign promise to make college free has not been linked to sorts of um, the organic movements that we're be- beginning to see within universities. And and I'd like to emphasize again, to be the pessimist on this panel, uh, movements that that it, they have a lot of obstacles in front of them to begin to force a type of transformation that we would want to see. They have significant um, opposition from university administration the law is not on their side um, graduate students are constantly cycling through graduate school so there's a loss of institutional memory it's very difficult for adjuncts who are um, you know putting together a life teaching uh, many different colleges to come together to form the types of solidarity uh, that one would see and, and just from my own experience uh, with, with you know talking with te- a tenure tenure uh, tenure track and tenured faculty about organizing it's by no means clear to everyone that it's in their interests to do so. Um, So I think there's a a lot of reasons it wasn't linked that reflect very broad problems on the American left right now.
3: Yeah, I just want to disagree with Daniel a little bit, where in the sense that I do think that one of the more compelling left visions of a sort of utopian future, or at least concrete utopian future we've seen in the recent years has been the Green New Deal, where there's, you know, talk of decommodification, of reclaiming public space low carbon leisure, of temples of public luxury, and in general, right, a a sort of revaluation of public goods. And I think it's a real missed opportunity that higher education is not part of that conversation. We hear a lot of talk about how pink collar jobs are green collar jobs. And that's often with reference to, you know, forms of feminized labor in, you know, healthcare and early childhood education, things like that. But that also applies all the way up to higher education. And I think I think there's a lack of a linkage uh, of thinking about what it would mean to fund a democratized university uh, to a wider social vision of a a kind of low carbon alternative future, which I think would be a very powerful and compelling one. Um, And I think the beauty of some of that is if you think about universities that way, you can also think about them as an industrial strategy. I mean, university campuses are huge economic anchors for the places that they're in, especially large public systems there are sources of the kinds of innovation that we need if we're going to avert um, the sort of most serious forms of catastrophe that already seem to be upon us, right, yeah, in terms of wildfires, etc. And I also think, you know, using the leverage provided by the kinds of public funding available in something like a Green New Deal would also be leveraged to um, force, you know, changes in government, governance to universities, right, to force forms of Uh, democratization, to make them accountable to their communities, to make them accountable to the people that actually make them up, to students, to staff, to faculty. And I think, I guess it's sad that, you know, the sort of movements for uh, labor organizing, especially in higher ed, have been sort of absent from the wider conversation about the Green New Deal and a low-carbon future.
0: Yeah, Tithy, what what do you think? How do we articulate such a politics in a program like the higher ed of our dreams that's a cohesive, systematic one? Can we look back to what part of what California is trying to build, what New York City was trying to build with CUNY back in the 60s? Can we look forward to a Green New Deal and an economy that centers care work? How do we stitch that together?
1: I think <laughs> for me, we cannot have what Daniel calls an utopian vision, what I would call a concrete utopia. We cannot have that from above. It must come out of the movement. It must be imminent in the movement, right? So all of the visions of the future must be imminent in the present uh, form of organizing that that exists. And only then will those become concrete ideals. So speaking of that, I want to give an example, which is we were despairing. um, a minute ago about undergraduate organizing on on campuses, and actually I don't fully agree that undergraduate uh, organizing has been has seen a lull. I want to focus uh, everyone's attention an undergraduate uh, student forum that I work closely with at a national level, which is Students for Justice in Palestine. So SJP chapters since uh, nineteen ninety three, against all odds, have blossomed on college campuses and some of the most radical anti-imperialist and anti-capitalist organizing on campuses have been led by SJP and in recent times uh, even more hopefully led by SJP's in alliance with groups like Jewish, Jewish Voices for Peace so the the SJPs I have talked to at at various uh, colleges these are students who are demonized by the administration, who are demonized by the American government and um, for being terrorists, you know um these are the very same students who often there is this overlap between them doing s j p work but also doing graduate student organizing, also doing uh you know feminist organizing on campuses so I see student orgs like SJPs actually being that sort of point of eminence within uh, within campuses from which we can think about and build a sort of um, broader dream social transformation. We cannot have a dream um, that we impose on the movement from above. It must come from the movement organically
2: so could i uh that's a really important point and it, it's interesting so in my in my academic scholarship i spent a lot of time studying the weimar era social democratic party the spd in germany and when i compare what they had then to what we had now it, i i just am totally at a loss given the fact that there's no real infrastructure, right? There, there's not a set of interlinking institutions within communities or across communities, within states or across states that would provide an infrastructure for socialists to do things like recognize what an organic demand actually would be, right? There's not a bunch of bowling clubs or playwriting <laughs> clubs agree. or or anything like that. So this is what i almost, I'm almost I, I'm very frustrated with a lot of times that American socialists talk about this thing because it's almost like metaphysical or mystical. It's like uh, the the demands will arise and the utopias will arise and then they'll somehow come to be. But when I I look at the American socialist movement, I see a very inchoate movement, very spread out across the country with almost no institutions able to connect itself, except for left-wing podcasts. No no shade, Dan. I think they're actually very important uh, forms of political education. But I, I just think that we need to be asking less, why should we be hopeful, and, and asking more, or why Why are we so weak? I think by
0: comparing the present-day American socialist movement to the German Social Democratic Party during its heyday is maybe not the most useful comparison to make. I would compare the state of the U.S. left today to the state of the U.S. left 5, 10, 15 years ago Sure. as someone who was an active member of the radical left. In the late 90, 1990s, at the time of the battle in Seattle, when the left was an utterly marginal, almost like zoo, zoological curiosity in American politics to having a presidential primary campaign this year that shifted the, the whole terrain of debate, followed by what is perhaps the largest protest movement, street protest movement in U.S. history, that gives me an enormous Amount of hope, an enormous amount of hope. The
2: way that I viewed Bernie, uh, it, it was kind of a hail mary pass, in that you would kind of Certainly. get around, decades. And reverse
0: engineer everything.
2: Yeah, exactly. So I mean, me I, that's that's, <laughs> that's what I think it was, and that, that's why I had so much hope. And if you talked to me six months ago, I'd be saying something different. Um, I think it, I do think it is important though to to, to focus on the German uh, SPD. Uh, admittedly, like you said, in the moment of the height of its power, because it's kind of the only analog we have a genuinely Marxist party working within a, a democracy it's not a presidential system, a parliamentary system. Uh, so I do think we could take inspiration for them to, uh, in terms of the type of institutions and social bonds that we need to build over time. And then just to end on a really, you know, down note, and Atithi, I'd love to hear your response. Um, I mean, I'm, as you would be unsurprised to learn, I'm very in favor of, you know, all the pro-Palestinian voices that have risen, you know, have developed their political education in campus over the last 20, 30 years Um, I think these are important radical movements, and I think it's important to keep these ideas alive. But they've had actually absolutely no effect on American policy. And even I would say many Bernie Sanders supporters really didn't care very much about Palestine, and and in fact were kind of I would say vaguely pro-Israel. So then I I just you know it's just like I I mean maybe this wasn't the best moment to to chat with me, but I'm feeling both hopeful in the sense like Dan said, like Bernie was really amazing. Also as someone who was on the left in the late two thousands, where no one was on the left, it's really incredible to. See, but at the same time, just looking at our institutional uh, weakness across the board. But maybe that's too pessimistic.
3: No, I, I was just going to say I've actually been impressed by the speed with which uh, the movements on the ground, in terms of the recent Black Lives Matter wave, have translated into a uh, real mushrooming of cops off campus organizing on campuses across the U.S. As far as I can see, and I don't have my ear totally to the ground in terms of the you know likelihood of success. But I, I you know looking at what happened at University of Minnesota, where, you know, demands from students seems to have been the main force pushing the university system to break its contract with their police force. That seems, you know, a very unprecedented development and a hopeful one. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com.
0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Feminist and the Sex Offender, Confronting Sexual Harm, Ending State Violence, by Judith Levine and Erica R. Miners. In the era of Me Too and mass incarceration— The Feminist and the Sex Offender makes a powerful feminist case for accountability without punishment, and sexual safety and pleasure without injustice. With analytical clarity and narrative force, The Feminist and the Sex Offender contends with two problems that are typically siloed—sexual and gender violence, on the one hand, and the state's unjust, ineffective, and soul-destroying response to it, on the other. Drawing on interviews, extensive research, reporting, and history, The Feminist and the Sex Offender develops an intersectional feminist approach to ending sexual violence. It maps with considerable detail the unjust sex offender regime while highlighting the alternatives we urgently need. The Feminist and the Sex Offender, Confronting Sexual Harm, Ending State Violence, by Judith Levine and Erica R. Miners. Out now from Verso Books. I want to talk about the other side of this, the right-wing side, which is that higher ed has become a battlefield in the culture war, unfortunately. Uh, like Obviously, this has been true for a long time to a certain extent, that right-wing anti-intellectualism, anti-college politics, Tiffy, as you mentioned. Ronald Reagan, when he was governor of California, made liberals and sexually liberated hippies and radicals of the UC system, like his major punching bags. And then again, after 9-11, there was a huge demonization of subversive professors. But now is a little different, at least quantitatively, if not. But I think qualitatively, too, in the sense that like Republicans in enormous numbers, according to Pew, state that higher ed is bad for the United States. And they and they believe so for very different reasons than, than Democrats who are critical of higher ed more in terms of tuition being too high. By contrast, Republicans think that tuition is a problem but just one part of a larger problem that problem being in the republican imaginary that professors bring their politics into the classroom and that students are shielded from opposing views and this change this is a this represents a change we've seen under Trump republicans who think college is bad for America rose from 35% in 2012 to 30 just 37% in 2015 and then to 59% in 2019 the the Trump era right has made academia the icon the everything that it believes is bad of cancel culture the destabilization of gender norms or Trump's latest obs- obsession with which to me really came out of left field but in reality came out of a Tucker Carlson segment i believe his obsession with critical race theory we hear a lot about Trump's anti-media politics from the media but what do you all make of his of this anti-university demagoguery being so absolutely central to trumpism
3: I mean, I think in in part that reflects, you know, the changing coalitions of the two-party system, right? I mean, if you look at voting patterns in the last 20, 30 years, uh, educational cleavages seem to be increasingly salient, right, between the coalitions assembled by the Democrats and the Republicans. And that makes attacks on uh, universities and especially elite universities um, an easy target, right, for a Republican, right, looking for populist voter. But I think on the other hand, they correctly diagnosed that a lot of the current higher education system is uh, more or less a system of class reproduction and that there there is a kind of winner-takes-all system concentrated in a, you know, top level of elite universities. And it's been fascinating to see, for instance, that something like an endowment tax, which I think most people here would agree with, um, initially came from the Republicans. And I think that's been, that's come out of, in part, the Democrats chasing, increasingly chasing suburban professional class voters um, at the expense of you know, their, the New Deal coalition. And I think education has played a sort of unacknowledged role in cementing part of that.
1: Okay, so I'll say that I only wish that we were as powerful as Trump makes us out to be, right? <laughs> so um, I I just saw that apparently transgender Black Marxists were out to change the world in, in America. So, I mean, what can you say except all power to transgender Black Marxists? So... Um, <laughs> I think there is a a question here of a particular version of freedom, right? So um, I think the the American state, especially post 9-11, is dedicated to constructing a particular discourse around freedom, free speech, and, and so on. And this is obviously the Uh, supposed to provide this discourse is supposed to provide the bulwark to American empire. So American universities and university administrators often take pride in academics uh, exercising uh, freedom or free speech rights on campus. And this is true to a certain extent. Uh, those of us who teach and have been teaching for a long time and have tenure do have more freedom to talk about capitalism, class formation in our classrooms than uh, let's say if I were actually working at the post office or at Walmart. So yes, I, I do have a certain amount of freedom and I have a certain amount of autonomy to direct my uh, curriculum to um, reflect the kind of education I want my students to have. However, I think there are, like all questions of bourgeois freedom, there are some important um, impediments to this very notion of freedom. First of all, there is an exception to freedom when it comes to palestine or any kind of anti-imperialist writing and as you probably know and your speakers know that you know most of the incidents of censorship punishment has has happened on university campuses towards individuals and student groups who advocate for Palestinian rights. So there is that sort of concrete impediment to the free speech idea.
0: Yeah, look at look at Barry Weiss at the until recently at The New York Times, always complaining about getting canceled and it didn't happen. So she canceled herself. But I believe though when she was at Columbia, she was part of the, you know, mob of people trying to get Joseph Massad fired.
2: Yeah, I could tell that I was I was at Columbia with Barry and I knew her in college if you ever want to talk about that. Right. <laughs> oh
1: and you know in 2015 they produced not Not Barry Weiss, obviously, but um, they (laughs) produce the the anti-Palestinian folks produced a website called Canary Mission. We all got put on it, which is a list of organizations and activists that it accused of supporting terrorism. So I'm on that uh, list with uh, with on the website with my picture, and my university administrators have have access to it. So so there is this Palestine exception to free speech. But I want to talk about the exception to freedom in general that exists on university campuses in gen- beyond Palestine, right? So for instance, we've been talking a lot about graduate students and adjuncts. Uh, do they have as much freedom to teach what they want in their classrooms? Absolutely not. And even in terms of what kind of funding you get, who you please on campuses, this is where the sort of neoliberal university Expresses its most power in shaping what is taught, not so much by actual prohibition, but by socialization, right? So a certain kind of discourse is encouraged on campuses, which will allow for certain ideas to find prominence and not others, right? So that is a version of freedom that exists on universities, which is highly hedged by these other sort of institutional regulations. And a new kind of freedom, I think, was being expressed on the streets during these anti-racist protests. And there was a kind of a new forging of what freedom means and what freedom entails. And so I think this is why I think universities and students particularly uh, were so, not were, are so energized by these protests and and the kind of um, horizons they opened up.
0: I want to repose that last question filtered through Tithy's answer uh, to you, Daniel, uh, which is why does the right thrive on imagining that we on the left are so much more powerful and menacing than we are, why do they locate that left as centered in academia, that left threat?
2: I think that's a great question. And uh, Dan, I'll answer that in two seconds, but I just want to have some hope. I, I agree with everyone that the protests were the most hopeful thing to happen since Bernie lost. Um, and I hope that they, they do energetically sort of move out into society. So I do think that is probably the the sort of scintilla of hope that I that I'm holding on to. So I, I just want to say that. Um okay, so the university. Um so I think that um American liberalism after nineteen forty five very must very much self-consciously styled itself as a liberalism of expertise and a liberalism of, uh, liberalism of experts. And that one of the things that liberalism offered, and I would say many of the institutions of the post-1945 American state, um, the institutions that we still have today are, are liberal institutions and they're still informed by that ideology. Um, So I think liberalism associated itself with expertise and universities um, began to brand themselves as the places where the future experts of America would get their training. So um, I think as um, society Society and, and this sort of sorting of the of, of the political parties that has occurred in the last 30, 40 years has occurred. Um, and that, you know, it's become to be a Democrat is to, quote unquote, believe in science, right, to really believe experts and to be a Republican is to not um, be that, is I think the main reason why the, why the university continues to serve um, as a punching bag for the American right. I think the university itself has served as a punching bag for quite a while, since the 1960s, and, and sort of the reasons for that has changed over time. In the 60s, it was the New Left Radical Revolutionaries, um, and later on, it was the Cannon Wars of the 1980s and 1990s, and sort of the right, you know, bemoaning the, the fact that uh, universities supposedly don't study dead white White men uh, as a professor, universities very much study dead white men. Um, but I think this sort of character, I mean, some might say it's most of what universities study. Um, but uh, I think that that um, the university has served as a liberal punching bag because since World War II, it it's been so associated with the elite of society. And so when things aren't going right um, and you you have no identity as an expert and you're not invested in that as a political identity, it serves as a very useful uh, thing to critique. And you're seeing that with Trump.
0: And so Simon do you think what do you think about what Daniel says do you think that the liberal attachment to non-material symbolic politics on the one hand and the cult of expertise and on the other hand the right wing demonization of of that expertise as anti-democratic and elitist are basically mutually constitutive of this sideshow that we've been living through for decades
3: I think that basic narrative seems right. Um, The only sort of interesting note I would add to that is I think it's been kind of fascinating to see a lot of liberal intellectuals get on board with the kind of bashing of quote unquote, you know, woke PC culture on college campuses and that sort of helping build the groundwork for the attacks on public education and higher education coming from the right. And it's just
1: absolutely.
3: um, And I think that does seem to be a recent turn in American liberalism. And I I don't have a very good explanation for it. But I think it has been quite dangerous in um, paving the way for the much more serious and material attacks that the right is prepared to make.
2: That almost seems generational, doesn't it? it 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 seems like the the fight over wokeness is is such a generational fight, and I think that we're also seeing right now a transformation of our political constituencies. I mean, if you look at who voted for Bernie, it was young people. So I think that's another difficult wrinkle, complex wrinkle to add into the story we're telling where we might actually be in some sort of moment of transition where these sorts of you know ideological presuppositions are being reformulated and and going into new social spheres.
0: And talking about cancel culture and universities and demonizing them is a way of talking about young people, the same way that talking about Bernie bros and online bullying during the presidential primary was a way to talk about, I don't like the politics of young people.
1: Absolutely, exactly. But you have to, I just want to add to that. I completely agree. I especially agree with what uh, Simon just pointed out about this sort of anti woke that's coming from non-Trump circles and how dangerous that is. But I want to point out that there is a particular danger that Trump and the right wing are seeing at this current moment. If you look at the anti-racist protests, what has been spectacular about these protests is the number of white people who have joined in the protests. The extent and depth of multiracial Protests uh, is something that I haven't seen in my 18 years in this country. You know, when Ferguson happened, I was in Ferguson and the protests were mainly Black and people of color. These protests that have happened uh, in recent times have been multiracial, often organized by young um, high school students, white, Black, and Latina together. And so these are the kids who are going to be coming to my freshman class, you know, next year. And these are the children of the Obama era who have no future in front of them. And they are the ones who are in my undergraduate classes. They are the ones who are in high schools who are gonna be coming to my undergraduate classes next year. And there is something that Trump should fear about these young people because they are, way more anti-racist than uh, their previous generations. They are way more gender fluid than their previous generations, and they are way more pissed off at capitalism.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I think one thing, though, about the the mass non-Black participation, in particular the white mass white youth participation, is that, of course, it's anti-racist. Of course, it's anti-cop. But it's also about, it also is about a lot, more among the multiracial zoomer generation that's not quite being named or else we just would not see such large numbers of white youth in the streets
2: I, Dan I, I and teethhy I agree completely and this is why my major fear is kind of liberals and not Trump because what <laughs> I'm worried because you're kind of seeing it at the university level with like the hiring of anti-racist consultants <laughs> and things like that, So I'm really worried about this energy, this like righteous energy, which emerges from all the total collapse of our society is going to be like liberalized. And you're going to have some sort of self-criticism sessions where everyone's going to say that, you know, they're racist and now they're an anti-racist and then capital will go unchallenged. So I actually think that's like a very clear space of struggle for at least people within the university, which is to prevent the corporatization of anti-racist agitation, which I
3: see is already happening. Tithy, Simon? And it's fascinating to also see how universities respond to these kinds of demands coming from students. I mean, at my campus at Yale, there's a kind of dance that the university plays of, you know, constantly saying, we hear you, we are, you know, starting X or Y panel or commission to think about these concerns. We are hiring a vice, you know, dean to think about this problem. But then you look at actual numbers, and, for instance, in terms of diversity of actual tenure track faculty and the numbers have been more or less stable for 30 years. And then we're not even talking about the relationship of Yale with New Haven, which has been terrible for decades.
1: So on that note, I want to tell everyone that at the one week before my university was due to start classes, I got fired from my job as the director of global studies, which was a program that I built to essentially um, talk about histories from below, um, anti-capitalist histories and so on. Uh, But I was in very good company. I got fired as a director along with the director of uh, women's gender and sexuality studies, the director of African-American studies, the director of Asian-American studies, and the director of critical disability studies. This was the same week that Purdue declared that it was putting together a board of trustees uh, committee Uh, to institute various means of um, racial justice on campus. It was also the week that Purdue declared that it was going to have high profile speakers come to campus to speak on racial justice, including Ibram Kendi, Patrice Culler, and, and so on. And that was the week that our programs that actually did the pedagogical work of anti-racist, anti-sexist, and critical disability on campus got dismantled entirely. So this is something that I want to emphasize um, is, is happening all over uh, the higher education landscape, which is spending a lot of money on talking about diversity and actually dismantling programs and Departments that teach about anti-racism and anti-racist history, and I think it's a deliberate
0: and all while doing nothing to substantively diversify the student body.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. You know, there are um, uh, uh, Purdue as uh, total enrollment of undergraduate students is forty-four thousand five hundred and fifty-one, of which four thousand four hundred are underrepresented. Uh, minority students, so that just gives you a sense of how a student of color might feel in a sea of white students on on campus. Okay, so and and this is the case in most universities. Purdue is just just an example. So I really want to uh, agree with Daniel when he says that there is a move to corporatize. There will be a move to corporate corporatize the anti-racist movement or co-opt the anti-racist movement. But I don't want to actually stop there because I think that is a general tendency of capital. It will always try to co-opt a social movement. And I think it is our job as the as feeble a left as we are to actually build those infrastructures to, uh, to talk about those processes, if not to fully resist them, at least.
0: Yes, without uh, without sort of like pathologizing the underlying movement that's getting co-opted. Like I think something I talked about in a recent show is that I think some people who would describe themselves as pretty like thoroughly anti-identitarian, whatever that means, would point to Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, attempting to, to celebrate Juneteenth as a example of why Black Lives Matter is not a good basis for A mass social movement when, in fact, what happened is when Jeff Bezos released this ridiculous Juneteenth letter, it provided an opportunity for black workers at Amazon to point out the contradiction between Bezos's neoliberal identitarian rhetoric and their lived reality as black workers.
2: Exactly. Exactly. No, I, I think I, I just want to add briefly, and I think this very problem um, raises interesting just analytical questions about w- what ways does the neoliberal university a, a, a attempt to accommodate and then domesticate particular um, radical movements and what, what ones like, you know, justice for Palestine, they just completely um, look at as anathema and, and what that reflects about the university and I think our society and liberalism as a whole.
0: I want to talk about another aspect of the right wing culture war on higher ed before we finish up, which is that Republicans are also way more likely to complain that students are not getting the skills they need for the labor market in college for a job, which seems to fit really neatly into this larger sort of anti-humanities politics that's so pervasive, not only in higher ed, but K through 12 ed, too, where standardized testing has squeezed everything you know, that can't be measured out of the curriculum. But Democrats, though they're more likely than Republicans, unsurprisingly, I think, to believe that personal and intellectual growth are important things that college can provide, they also cite this lack of giving students the skills they need for the labor market. All at a time, as we discussed a little bit earlier, and I think very importantly, at a time when the income divide between those with and without a college education has grown wider. How does this sort of technocratic anti-humanities politics operate as a mass politics? And is what we're seeing like a critique of the economic system and bleak job prospects being displaced onto universities in general and liberal arts in particular?
2: Absolutely. And I think you could see this uh, across the entire um K through 12 into uh, into sort of tertiary edu- uh, tertiary education spheres, where that one of the, I think one of the the promises of liberalism in the, uh, in the post-war period was that education would lift all boats and would therefore lift the economy. Um, and the problem that we're confronting now is what happens when, as, as many people have said throughout this conversation, you see a lot more students, uh, a lot more diverse student body and things along those lines, uh, and much more, uh, a larger number of educated Americans, uh, and there's no actual jobs. And so I think this is like, a, I would say this is the problem that that will confront our society and probably all of us in our lifetimes over the next fifty uh, plus years. Which is, what do you do when you have a political economy that doesn't actually require very many people to work? Um, and to some degree, you're seeing questions like this being raised by virtue of the pandemic, when you know people are probably, I would assume, doing a lot less work at home, or at the very least, not going into the office. And it's be- and it's become very clear that people don't need to work um, as much as they have been. And so then, what what is the role of the state? in a new in a new world where work just isn't as important as it is and and I think Dan you're exactly right that a lot of these anxieties are being displaced onto criticisms of the university or high school or primary school teachers um, one might add and it's just a distraction from um, confronting the problem of what uh recently depassed uh uh recently passed recently deceased uh,
3: David Graeber famously called bullshit jobs
0: <laughs> Simon
3: But I think I think there's an interesting irony to the you know, technocratic or vocational critique of the humanities and liberal arts in general, because you know, on the one hand, we can see it as a kind of extension of the consumer mentality of, of the sort of logic of human capital and the sort of you know the sort of growth of economic rationality into even into autonomous domains. But on the other hand, those who can afford to have that kind of um, autonomy do take it and seek it. I mean, liberal small liberal arts colleges and elite uh, selective universities where the humanities are you know relatively well funded are almost exclusively the pr- preserve of the rich, right? So, I mean, there's a statistic that something like in the top 40 most selective universities, uh, more students are taken from the top one percentile of wealth than the bottom 60%. And these are the places uh, where liberal arts, you know, continues to survive and even in a kind of limited way. And so I do think it, it it shows us a kind of irony, which is that education for its own sake still exists to some extent in our society, but it's Almost exclusively um, a good reserve for the the very wealthiest. Tiffy.
1: Yeah. So I I remember. I think it was right after sometime during the Great Recession. I want to say 2010 or 11. The governor of Florida basically ridiculed the need for anthropologists, saying, "You know, why do we even need anthropologists?" So this is especially a sort of attack on. What the right and actually university administrators see as non-productive majors and programs, right? So, what is the point in having a creative writing program? What is the point of teaching poetry? Is learning about T. S. Eliot or Rabindranath Tagore going to get you a job? So that's basically the the, the mindset. And and there are two thing, two sides to it. On the one hand, I think. There is. This is not a deliberate attempt. You know, the capitalist ruling class is not a bunch of lizard men uh, planning this out. But I think there is a contrary um... to
0: popular public opinion.
1: (laughs) (laughs) True, true, (laughs) true. Uh, But I think there is. It's it's a consequentialist behavior in the sense that actually cutting out humanities programs cuts out a whole generation of learners from histories and tools to understand society, right? So this is, and this goes hand in hand with universities becoming more hostile to working class um, students. So that's one side of that. If you do not, if you are deliberately cut off from the history of Resistance or protest, or how to understand society, then you're just a much better socialized subject. But the other side of it is exactly as Simon says that poetry, or what the New York Times once called dead languages. all flourish in the ivies. And this is, you know, this is also the case in in places like England where Eton, you can study whatever you want while, you know, sort of state uh, schools, you don't even have an arts program. So this... Mentality is also about narrowing the horizon of hope and what you can expect from education. So the idea is that education has to be only about earning your bread, while for the rich and the elite, education still continues to be about bread and roses.
2: And students themselves just imbibe this idea. At the beginning of every one of my classes, I I ask students why they come to college and (laughs) everyone answers to get a job. (laughs) Um, that not, no one ever answers um, anything else. And then I actually give a, a lecture on the structure of the university. <laughs> but um, but I think it's it's important to really emphasize this. You know, I remember in college, all of my friends who later went on to become whatever lawyers or Goldman Sachs bankers, they all majored in like history and English, right? Because the elite knows that it's going to be fine, that they're going to be hired anyway. So this is another, you know, bitter irony or even tragedy is that you wind up having working class people taking up that tens of thousands of dollars for loans to attend National University, a private, you know, for-profit college, and, and they just have loans and they don't even get a job. So there's a lot of like tragedy and lives destroyed in the higher education complex that I, I really do think need to be connected to these larger social stru- uh, struggles because they're all connected. And I think that's the way to move forward is to really make this broad anti-capitalist
3: within and without the university social movement you just we can hardly expect students that graduate with two hundred thousand dollars or something like that with debt to um want education exactly. for its own sake, right? So I mean in in some sense, you know, the current funding structure is disciplining them into fully absorbing the vocational mentality.
1: Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly.
0: Stepping back to, to finish up, how is this semester going to play out? I think is something that a lot of people listening Want to know the answer to Could could this be an extinction event for academia as we had known it? And if it is, might that open up a set of contradictions, a set of impossible situations, basically, that inevitably provide some sort of opening that may be taken, maybe not taken advantage of for the left, students, professors, other higher ed workers to fight for something new? Because it doesn't seem like academia will just collapse and that'll just be that.
2: I think, you're, I think you're right. I mean, I don't think it, w- it will collapse. It's just such a, a large and enormous industry. But I do think you're going to see a contraction um, both across the United States with colleges, a certain amount of colleges closing, um, students deciding not to attend to do other things, which is probably you know, not the worst thing in the world in, in terms of not taking out um, debt. Uh, I, and my, my big guess is that a lot of issues that have been like kind of bubbling around like like student debt, um, you know, the purpose of a university education, its connection to employment, which I've always been uh, burbling around, will in the next year, year and a half really enter the, the mainstream of political uh, discussion? And of course, a lot of this depends on um, who wins the presidential election and what happens if they do. So, for example, if Biden, let's say, wins a presidential election, does the NLRB change? Right? Do do various uh, does the executive actually use executive orders to foster uh, particular forms of labor organizing, which is you know uh, theoretically possible? Um, so, I think there's a a lot of open questions. But what I do think um, is become ever more clear is that we're we're at a breaking point. The system which has continued sort of on life support since 2008, if not earlier, uh, just isn't going to be able to continue as it was. And there, we're, we're in the, um, we're, we're going to see some form of transformation uh, and
3: hopefully it'll be a good one and, and not a bad one. I'll, I'll end optimistically. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it. it's my turn to be, it's my turn. I suppose to be the pessimistic one. Please. I do think that this is going to be extremely serious for higher ed in the US. Um, I saw one estimate that this was before, um, this was right when the pandemic hit, so it's unclear how it will play out, but that the sector might lose something like 45 billion in revenue. Um, But just between 2016 and now, so even before the pandemic, 61 small liberal arts colleges closed or had to merge. So I think we could see a very, very serious wave of restructuring, closures. Um, and unless there's um, some additional federal aid, especially to states, um, I think the consequences for public education in states is going to be extremely, extremely dire.
1: I'm, I agree with that. I think we, we are at a very, very precarious moment for higher education. I had already taken for granted that I was probably uh, the last generation of tenured professors, and none of my graduate students will ever get jobs. But I think but I think right now and I actually um, when people come to do um, their graduate work with me, I actually tell them because I feel it's irresponsible to start graduate education with them with sort of rosy hopes of the future. But I do think that COVID-19 will allow neoliberal universities to uh, fulfill the dreams that they have been um unable to fulfill before. Um, COVID-19 budget cuts by states will allow them to do exactly uh, what they have always wanted to do and and restructure universities um, in the way that they want. Having said that, and to add on to that uh, horrible scenario, I also want to say that university administrators, just like our uh, political leaders, are absolutely irresponsible about life about human life you know today uh, i just heard that a third uh, grade teacher basically she she died in the second week of school's reopening campuses are soon going to have uh, some devastating uh, consequences of opening in person but this is not something the university administrators just like our political leaders care about so we are going coming in for some very very dark times having said that i do want to end on a note of hope and my hope lies in two directions one is i think covid-19 the pandemic has to a certain extent challenged cer- certain deep rooted c- certain ideas that are deep rooted in society and one is the reliance that we normally have on waged work. Okay, so the whole question of us using our paychecks to pay for things have completely been upended by the pandemic. And I think it has clarified tragically what kind of work is necessary, what kind of work is essential to keep society afloat. And it has also shown something really troubling and violent about, as as uh, one of my comrades, Aaron Jaffe, put it recently, about the way we completely depend on wage work. And this understanding and this possibility that wage work is not going to save us, I think is a very dark realization, but I think it can have consequences and political action that can challenge that that darkness. And there I see this generation of young people who are both taking to the streets to protest police violence, to talk about American capitalism as the sort of generation that is also going to transform. If universities can be transformed, it is this generation that's going to um, have to do it.
0: I want to follow up on what what you just said briefly. Is, Is there a point where the proletarianization of faculty, the declining quality of education, the bullshit quality of learning on Zoom alone, the lack of access to education in a job market that demands that you possess it, the piles of debt and the fact that even after you get an education, the job still sucks. Is there a point where universities no longer meet what society wants from them? On the one hand, and what capitalism and the state require of them on the other hand, and thus that some sort of productive contradiction emerges. Are there structural reasons to believe, in other words, that things just can't get permanently shittier?
1: Well— I think what you're pointing towards is capital eating its own babies. So what it's doing is it's actually destroying its own conditions of reproduction, right? So by uh, by attacking these very spaces and pushing them to the limit, it is ultimately also endangering its ability to reproduce itself, um, have a workforce that can... Uh, produce profit. So I think the solution will be, uh, short of a socialist revolution, which uh, <laughs> which uh, I don't think uh, I'm going to see in my lifetime, she says in a despairing way, um, I think the solution will be a social democratic compromise. And I think that social democratic compromise will come to a new liberal new deal, a sort of like a Obama era neoliberal New Deal, where money will go into universities, but it will be uh, in return for a deep compromise with Europe, uh, U.S. imperialism and building U- U.S. capitalist power. So I think that's how capitalism, uh, the social democratic compromise is going to pull capitalism back from its own destruction.
2: And Tithi, just to, to add to that very briefly, that's I'm really worried about this new Cold War with China rhetoric. I think I, I think that is going to be weaponized to make the exact sort of pseudo-social democratic compromise that you're talking about. Um, I, see, I see that gearing up all over the place. Uh, 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 on university campuses. Uh, You see it around DC, you see it in prominent mainstream news outlets. My guess is that uh, obviously not consciously, but, you know, sort of unconsciously in the next three to five years, capital is going to try to save itself by promoting a new Cold War with China. And that's what I'm really worried about. And I hope maybe the Zoomers will save us. Maybe we will truly be saved by them.
3: Well, to provide, I mean, to provide one hopeful note that I think, you know, touches on things we, Brought up earlier, I do think that as the status of university uh, teachers, Uber drivers, and indebted college graduates, maybe as they all become the same person, uh, you know, but as those statuses tend to equalize, I do think that that produces at least the possibility, if not the necessity, but the possibility of new kinds of solidarity and the kinds of movements, Daniel, that you were talking earlier about, um, that would build beyond the university.
0: Well, Tithi Bhattacharya, Daniel Bessner, and Simon Torresinta, thank you all so much.
1: Thank you.
3: Thanks.
0: Tithi Bhattacharya is a professor of history at Purdue University and the author of, amongst other things, the book Feminism for the 99%, co-authored with Nancy Frazier and Cynthia Arutzah. Daniel Bessner is a professor in Western Civilization at the University of Washington, and, among other things, the author of a recent essay in The Nation entitled, House of Cards, Can the American University Be Saved? Simon Torosinta is a PhD candidate in the History of Science and Medicine at Yale, whose essay on universities and the pandemic, Extinction Event, recently appeared in N-Plus-One. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, When communist artisans form associations, education and propaganda are their first aims. But the very act of associating creates a new need, the need for society. And what appeared to be a means has become an end. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com, where every single episode is organized by author and topic. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. Elsewhere on social media, the same. Find us wherever you get podcasts. And subscribe. If it is on iTunes or whatever, please take a quick moment to leave a nice review. Those reviews and ratings help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling your friends about the show, why you like it, why they should listen. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help this operation keep going strong. Even a few bucks is huge.